For most every adult ever, there comes a point when we realize that life is difficult. We often first realize this because of our own life situation, trying to find a job for the first time, trying to rent an apartment, buy a car, pay taxes. Interacting with the world is complicated. And eventually, eventually, eventually we realize that it's uh, not just difficult for us, but that life is difficult for everyone. And these difficulties compound exponentially the more people we care about. In other words, if we are only concerned with ourselves, our decision-making is simplified significantly. Maybe still difficult and complicated, but it is much less so. If, however, we care about family, neighbors, our community, our city, our world, the complexity of solving the problems of life become almost incomprehensible. So, when we come to this realization about life being difficult, we have a decision to make. Do we accept this as true, as the way things are, and embrace all that comes with that? Ambiguity, uncertainty, change? Or do we reject this and seek certainty and stability? Of course, our response to the difficulty can vary in degree and it can change over time. Or we may respond differently in different areas of our lives. Still, I think that most of us have a fundamental approach to life. We are open to the complexity or we try to limit it. We certainly see this divide within the Christian church. There are followers of Christ who feel that God's words are clear and essentially understandable for anyone who is able to read. That most of life's problems for individuals and for the world would be solved if people just followed God's word. At the same time, there are those who feel that God's words are complicated by history, culture, translation, and that when seeking God's guidance in our own lives, equal attention must be paid to our own story, culture, and language. That God does provide guidance, but it often takes thought and time to discern. Take, for example, this morning's story. There are some in the Christian church, both past and present, who take Jesus's words in this story as his teaching on how his followers are to relate to the political state always and forever. He was laying down instruction for his followers then, and those same instructions stand for us here and now. Give to the government what belongs to the government, give to God what belongs to God. 
In fact, this story specifically is largely responsible for a whole system of interacting with politics and government called the Two Kingdoms Doctrine. In short, the idea is that government and religion are two separate realms with little, if any, overlap. Visually, the image is of two circles side by side, possibly touching, maybe a little overlapping, but distinctly different. This is a perspective that seeks to live with clarity and stability. Jesus said it, give Caesar what is Caesar, give God what is God's, that's the way I'm going to live. The problem with that for me is, what does that mean? Let's use a similar example as Jesus. Money. In our story, Jesus said to those who came to him and were asking about this tax situation, uh, bring me a coin. Uh, here we go. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin. He asked them whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Similarly for us, even though we add that little in God we trust on some of our uh, currency, the government prints it. Government prints it and controls it, is responsible for it. In that sense, it belongs to the government. So why have Christians for centuries and around the world, so all sorts of different cultures, why have we collected this government-made currency in our houses of worship, then kept it and used it for God's work. If we're Rome is Rome's, Caesar's Caesar's, God's God's, government government, God's God's. And where do banks fit in into this scenario? Most banks are privately owned, but heavily regulated by the government. Should banks, I mean, excuse me, should churches use banks for their government-made money? And what happens if there's a problem with a church's bank account? Should that be resolved through the government's system of justice, even though it's the church's bank account? Or should that be resolved through, through some ecclesiastical system or through prayer? So in one respect, Jesus' words sound clear and simple. Give to the government what belongs to the government. Give to God what belongs to God. But living day to day in a society with other human beings, it is not simple to separate those two realms. And I don't think Jesus meant for his response to be simple. These yahoos come at Jesus with a question intended to force him into a binary yes or no answer. Specifically, should we or shouldn't we? That's it. Simple, right? First, they try to lure him into thinking that they are very earnest seekers of wisdom. Um, 
They try to butter him up. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by human beings because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they make it sound like they really want to know what is God's way with this and how, do you, how should we go about things. And then they hand in this spring-loaded question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's it. Do it or don't. Should we pay or shouldn't we? One of the taxes particularly that they were referring to uh, was for the Jewish people humiliating to pay. Every single person had to pay it. It was essentially a, a poll tax, and it reminded them consistently of their oppression by Rome. If Jesus was viewed as taking the side of Rome and the Roman authority by saying, yes, we should pay, he would have been considered a traitor by many of his own people. If Jesus was viewed as taking a stance opposing Rome and the Roman authority, by answering, no, you shouldn't, he would risk being jailed and executed before his work was done. That was why there were both religious leaders and these political psychophants, the Herodians, that were there because they sort of teamed up to figure out a way to try to trap him. It seemed like one way or the other, he was going to get himself into trouble. The questioners have tried to set the terms of the question in a way that Jesus can answer only yes or no, should we or shouldn't we? And either answer will hurt him. But Jesus refuses to allow the terms of the question to be so starkly limited. Jesus knows that living as God's people in a land that God had given them, had promised them from ages, but is currently under occupation by a pagan government, Roman occupation, living in that situation is a very complicated thing. Jesus knows that the issues surrounding the act of paying tax can't be resolved with a simple yes or no answer. So he doesn't give one. Instead, Jesus confronts these religious fundamentalists and political psychophants who asked the question with the complexity of the issue. The fact that Jesus made them handle the coin revealed in a, in a sign their own hypocrisy in trying to force a simple answer. Professor Douglas Hare from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary explains, although images were strictly forbidden by the second commandment, and specifically engraved images, Jesus' enemies have no difficulty in producing a denarius even here in the temple. This is where this took place. The most holy sanctuary 
of the Lord God, a coin bearing the image of a pagan emperor who claimed also in the inscription on the coin to be the son of God and the chief priest. Because the questioners do not hesitate to use Caesar's coins in daily business and even bring them into the temple, they have no right to raise a question about whether or not paying taxes to to Caesar accords with the law of Moses or to try to force such a simple answer. And Jesus's spoken response complicates things even further. Jesus references specifically the image of Caesar on the coin as the reason it belongs to Caesar. Our Hebrew First Testament reading reminds us all that all human beings are essentially engraved with or stamped with God's image. Again, uh, then God said, let us make man, woman in our image, in our likeness. So God created man, woman in their own image, God's own image. In the image of God, they created them, male and female. God created them. You can't say it more times in, in such few verses. We are stamped with, engraved with the image of God. Therefore, we as human beings in the fullness of who we are belong to God. Our relationship to our government is only one aspect of who we are as human beings, one aspect. Our relationship to God encompasses the whole of who we are, all of our relationships to the world. So when Jesus says, give to the government what belongs to the government and give to God what belongs to God, we are still left to figure out how our limited relationship with God, or with government, fits in with this overall relationship with God. And figuring out all the specifics of the day-to-day living within these relationships is complex. It's hard. It often takes a lot of thought and time. I think one of the most frustrating symptoms of the partisanship that we have in our country right now is how much we try to force binary answers to complex questions. Are you for or against abortion? For or against? Should homeless encampments be swept clear or not? Should landlords be allowed to evict people or not? It's maddening to me how we try to force politicians and public leaders to address these issues as if they can be reduced to a simple yes or no. We saw this in the debates, both in the primaries and in the nationals. We try to force people into these yes or no answers, but these are complex issues with numerous causes and numerous effects. They won't be resolved with one yes or no answer. They won't be resolved with one slogan or one soundbite. 
and they won't be resolved with one scripture verse. God gave us brains in order to use them. And the thing is, these brains are everywhere. There are literally billions of brains in this world. So why is it that we try to limit our own to yes or no answers? And why is it that we try to limit the ones that we listen to or the ones who are even at the table trying to find answers? Why do we limit them so greatly? We know why. We try to simplify things. We try to limit thoughts and input because it's easier. It's just a lot easier not to have to think. And it's a lot quicker. It's difficult to live with ambiguity, to live with uncertainty and change. Yet in order to honor the complexity of life, we have to be open to it. The good news is God has given us brains to use for thought, for reasoning, and prayer, and imagination. And God gives us scriptures and stories to challenge us and to expand our understanding. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to accompany us along the way. Paul put it this way in our Hebrew New Testament passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Again, the whole of who we are, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world and the, the partisanship and the, the binary focus, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, God's good and pleasing and perfect will, and what transforms our mind is using the brain that God has give us, given us, listening to the scriptures and the stories that God has given us, and listening to the Holy Spirit who accompanies us. We have all this in order that we might follow the will of God. Thanks be to God.